Hello and welcome to Pursuit of Infinity. In this week's episode, we go all over the place. The conversation in retrospect has a lot to do with change and the fact that we're living in a world in which everything is happening here and now. Understanding that the present moment is the only thing that's happening and it's everything that's happening at the same time has been a very important staple in our paths. But before we get to it, for all things Pursuit of Infinity, visit our newly published website, pursuitofinfinity.com, where we have all of our episodes and links for everywhere you can follow us. So if you like what we do, head on over there and show us some support. We also really appreciate a follow or a sub, as well as a five-star rating, and maybe even some kind words of encouragement in the form of a review. These things really help us to expand our reach and credibility, which is so much appreciated. And if you're feeling extra magnanimous, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash pursuit of infinity, where you can donate as little as $2 a month to support what we do. Check us out on YouTube. The channel is up. All of our episodes are there. So if you prefer some visuals and to put some faces to the names, subscribe and keep up with us over there. We're also on Instagram at pursuit of infinity pod. So give us a follow. Again, all this can be accessed at pursuitofinfinity.com. And without further delay, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this week's discussion. I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about what's called like the the boat or the ship allegory. Have you heard about this? Uh, I think so. So the allegory is that if you have like a wooden ship and over time you replace each part of that ship after say 10 or 20 years, not a single part of that ship is the original part. Like none of the wood that is used on the deck, none of the paint, none of it is the original boat or the original materials used to create the boat. So the question being, is the boat the same boat? Yeah, that's a weird one because I could see it go either way. I would think like first what pops into my head is no, it's obviously not because it consists of all new pieces. or. You could kind of think of it as, yes, it's absolutely the same ship, just like an evolved form of it. Because at one point, at least one piece that's on the boat would have touched the quote-unquote original boat. You know, the final new piece that you replace on the boat would have been a part of the original. Oh, I like that. Yeah, or even like the very first part that you replace would have been surrounded by the original parts, right? Yeah. that uh, I don't know. What would you say would be the answer to that? I mean, probably it's both. It's like one of those paradoxes of language because then you have to ask yourself, what do you mean by the original boat? Do you mean it has like the original soul of the boat? Is the captain and the crew the same? Is it taking the same voyages? Like, what do you consider it the same? Does the same mean that it has to be physically the same? Because if you look at our bodies and ourselves, um, apparently every seven years or so or something like that, not a biologist, but they say that every about seven years, every single cell in your body will have transformed and um, gone through, what do they call it? Is it mitosis when a cell divides? So you don't have any of the original cells that you had from seven years ago, making you like a different human every seven years. Yeah, I've heard that too. Um, and clearly you would say that you are the same person. But same as the boat, it is a slow process. It's not, it's not like it happens overnight. Like you said it takes seven years. And with that regard, we consider ourselves the same person materially as we were seven years ago. But then also, if you're thinking in like a non-material sense, we clearly aren't the same people that we were seven years ago. Like materially, you want to say yes. But I don't know, spiritually, psychologically, 
experientially, we aren't that person. Is it just the memories that make us think we're the same person? Like the memories that we carry with us? Is that what it makes us think that even though we are technically different in every single way, that we feel like we're the same person? I think, yeah, the memory is basically it, really. I mean, think about it. It's strange. It's, it's kind of like a dream. Like when you wake up in your dream, you already have a story. You're in the story already. There's already a narrative happening. And it's like the same thing in real life. You wake up and immediately, there might be like a brief moment before you're fully aware of who you are and what's going on that, you know, you don't feel this, but boom, then it's like suddenly the narrative, the story hits. And then all of a sudden, you know the life you've lived and you know where you're supposed to be. And it's just, it's all your memories just coming to you at that time. And then that it's just like, now you're back in the story. We would never know it, but this is going to sound kind of weird. Like if, if you look at time as a nonlinear dimension, and uh, if you look at time as everything is happening at the same time, all the time, like it's all just one continuous happening, then you would never know if like you wake up every morning and your consciousness wakes up into a different time every morning. But when you would wake up, say I woke up and it was 2030, I would wake up having all of the memories of my life up until 2030, which means I'd have all the memories up until the night I went to bed before I woke up. So you would never know if every time you go to sleep and you wake up, you wake up within a different time in your biological life. Yeah, and even you could wake up as a different person. Because like I said, when you wake up, it's like the story begins. Suddenly, you become your memories. And um, it's, that's just crazy. Because it's impossible to prove anything in the past, really, like of, through your experience. It's like almost the same type of thing when you think about you can never prove that anybody but yourself is conscious. Like I can sit here and talk with you and same, same way with the dream. Like I can infer that you're conscious, that you're having the same sentient experience as me, or in reality, you could actually just be like a dream character who's not experiencing anything. And I'm just projecting you into the world, kind of like a solipsism. Uh, it's just these weird things that you think about. And it's kind of just exists out of the possibility of proof. And that kind of brings back something that you said in our last episode, which was if you're looking at your dreams, which brain is dreaming the dream? Is it the brain of the, of the character or of you in your dream? Is the brain of that thing experiencing the dream or is the dream being experienced by the brain of the sleeper? And I think that's an insane question to ask. I think, like, I think about that question like daily, ever since you you said it, and like it just, it kind of centers me. It makes me think about what I define as reality or what I define as knowing or like, you know, like epistemology. You know, it just it brings that into like the forefront. It's very very cool. And so I got to thank you for asking that question. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, because. I personally find brains to be overrated, basically, the credit we give them. Um, because if you wake up, you assume that your brain is doing all the work. But when you wake up in your dream, you assume your brain is doing all the work. It's the same thing. And so you got to ask, which brain is actually doing the work? Or is it just like fractal in nature? That's why I think that's a, a good like analogy to think about because... For me, it brings into question materialism and physicalism. Um, that's why I say like brains are overrated because in the dream, like we're talking when you're dreaming, the person that's in the dream has a brain that they think is creating the reality. And you can extrapolate that out to this reality. And I always say I think reality is 
mostly like dreamlike in nature. So this is the dream as well. This is the dream of a uh, of our egos of who we are in this dream in like a physical time and place. And we believe that the brain is what is allowing us to perceive this quote unquote material reality. But I think that all went out the window when you have an experience that is beyond your body. Like you can experience something outside of yourself in this form. Um, your consciousness is able to experience something outside of time um, in a whole different form. So for me, that just kind of smashed the whole materialism thing and made me think about kind of how many assumptions we have about understanding, especially with dreams. What pops into my head is if there is a consciousness or some sort of a field that exists outside of our brains, because, I mean, you and I can pretty much agree that our brains in our opinion, do not create consciousness. Or consciousness does not originate in the brain. So is it, is it that the ego is a system that is created by the brain in order to filter and sort of keep and maintain control over like an overflow of consciousness if there wasn't a system like that to do it? I mean, I think it could be looked at that way, and that does make sense in a way. But I would look at it as more of as you are consciousness and you are dreaming the dream of a human. And in this dream world that you're imagining, brains are what drives the character. But you could, that's not actually what it is. It's just the dream. And in this dream, brains are important. That's why we think they're important. That's why in this dream, if I bash your head with something, you'll still have an effect on your brain. And someone will be able to look at your brain and say, oh, his brain's damaged. Now his consciousness has been changed. But that's just because it's an aspect of the dream. So like, just like a dream when you go to sleep, there's like different rule sets to each dream you have. There's always consistencies. So one of the consistencies of this dream of who we are right now is that our brain is important to our function and our perception of this dream. So as this reality that we're in right now speaking in, exists outside of the dream reality what do you think exists outside of this reality or this dream reality i don't think that i think that's the thing there is no it's not like anything exists outside of this dream reality this is this is it so does that make this dream reality more important so to speak than the dream reality that we have when we go to sleep no i think it's the same thing just the same way when you wake up and wake up into your dream, you have a whole narrative arc behind you. And that's why people never know when they're dreaming. So like basically we could be dreaming right now. When you dream, there's a reason why you run away from monsters or like run away from a bear or something. It's because you believe it's real. And the narrative behind you tells you that if you don't get away from the bear, you're going to die. So all that exists. And even us talking about the dreams, it's just part of that narrative that we woke up with this morning. So you can get lucid in a dream and you know that you're dreaming. Do you think there's a way to become a quote unquote lucid in this reality to know that this is a dream or this is an illusion to maybe psychedelics being a tool for that? Yeah, I think for sure. I mean, that's kind of, that's what I think it, the whole gist of it is is to understand what this is. Um, and I think, I mean, a dream is just the best thing I can compare it to, to what this seems to be, because there's nothing else like it. I mean, when you just experience reality as it is, it's pretty crazy when you just drop yourself down into this moment and look around and try to erase everything from your mind and just experience everything at once, like what is happening. Um, it's just those story arcs that we have when we start adding concepts and memories on top of it that, you know, it starts to make sense logically to us. It makes me think of meditation as a way of quieting the chatter that creates the stories that take our minds on a ride. 
And if you ever meditated before, when you first start meditating, you really do get caught on those thought streams. And uh, you'll start by just telling yourself a tiny little story. And then you'll just get caught in that thought. And before you know it, you'll you'll be uh, in a state where you're realizing that your your thoughts have taken you away from the present moment. And that's when you get back to your breath and you can you continue your you know your meditation even though people think that when that happens they're not doing it right that is what meditation is for um and it does seem that that's probably one of the best tools you know to break yourself free of uh you know what we we think we're stuck in here in this this world yeah and um it's not easy to like do those meditations and it's funny i hear so many people say like if you bring up meditation to them um so many people will say like, oh, I can't do it. Or like, I, I think they have ADD or ADHD or something. It's just like, no, it's not supposed to be easy. It's That's how it is for everybody. It's a hard thing to do. Like, so when you say, oh, I can't do it, it just means that you have to practice more. It's hard. I mean, sometimes it's easier than other times. I've noticed that doing breath work before meditation is, I mean, it changes it. It makes it so much easier for me personally. Um, but it's not not supposed to be easy, at least when you start. Yeah, it's like going to the gym or something. You know, I can't bench 250 pounds, but I could. If I went to the gym for two years straight or something like that, I could. It's just like you have to build up using the tools around you with the strength to achieve the goal. Because nothing in life is easy and nothing in life just comes in an instant to you, especially the things that are worth working for and, and, uh, and worth having. Yeah. I mean, anything that's worthwhile, uh, takes time and effort, no matter what it is. Um, one thing that I've like started to do more consciously is practice the art of not knowing, which would mean like, it's like pretty extreme, but it's really helpful. So like, an exercise that you could do would be like to sit here right now and ha and close your eyes. And then when you close your eyes, you want to forget the past and pretend that it doesn't exist. And then try to forget the, that there's a future ahead of you. And try to relieve yourself from all of those thoughts of, you know, your past and the future. And then you got to take it even further and forget that you're in this room. And beyond that, don't just forget that you're in the room. Realize that you actually don't know if you're in the room. Not like conceptually. If you're sitting here with your eyes closed, you actually don't know if you're in the room. And you don't know that you're on the planet Earth. You don't know anything with the eyes closed. Um, and it's about forgetting all these assumptions that you have. And it's, it's actually a practice, not just like a conceptual exercise, that you practice that you don't know what you think you know. It's like an epistemological exercise. So like, for instance, we're sitting in this room right here, and to practice the exercise would be for me to actually not know what's outside the door. Um, See, I can tell myself the whole story of what's out there, and um, I can assume it's all out there, but I actually don't know what's out there. You know, um, I could assume who's upstairs, or you could actually just not know. And I think that's a powerful exercise to practice yourself. There's a meditation that I heard, I think it was Ramdas or somebody, I don't know who it was, uh, was, was like guiding it. And it was this like meditation where you, you breathe in and then as you breathe out, you envision that you're breathing out golden flakes. And then you breathe them back in and you see them come in and then you breathe them back out. And as you breathe them in, you notice at the bottom of your, of the pit of your stomach, there's a tiny, tiny little Buddha that is being formed by these golden flakes. So every time you breathe them in, the Buddha gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger until the Buddha is eventually taking up like your whole stomach, then a bit bigger. It's taken up your whole chest, bigger, bigger, bigger. It takes up your body. Then it gets bigger and it takes up 
the space of your whole house, then your whole town, then your whole city, then your whole state, then your whole country, the whole world, and then eventually up into the galaxy and all of the cosmos. And I think it sort of relates in a way to, to the meditation you, you just described because you're taking your perspective of, in this case, big and small, and you're erasing that perspective. You're envisioning yourself and you're experiencing yourself as very tiny when you're inside of your body with this Buddha. And then you're also experiencing yourself as the entire cosmos, which is all that we can conceive of being our physical reality. So I do think that it's like similar in, in uh, methodology to what you just described. Yeah, it's like uh, also that makes me think of the understanding that uh, like size doesn't actually exist. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've heard of that meditation before and I tried it very briefly. I didn't I've, I've never actually practiced it, but uh, I've heard of that and I did try it. But something like that, I think I'd need to really invest my time and practice into. But I conceptually, it sounds great. Like it would work really well. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing how many forms of meditation are out there. And it's like they're all psychological methods to get you to do the same thing, just to get you to stay within the present moment. And it's almost like with each of these methods, like you're tricking your default mode network or like you're tricking your ego into shutting itself down so that you can be in the present moment. And that's why I think some of these methods might sound weird to like a lay person or someone who hasn't really been entrenched in this in this world, but they do seem to be like tricks that you play on yourself to get yourself to be in the present moment. And also there's, like you said, there's so many different methods of meditation, but there's also uh, concentration, which is basically another method of meditation. But it's kind of the opposite where like a lot of meditations, you're trying to empty your mind like a concentration uh, practice is, there's so many different ways you can do it, um, it, but it's just intense focus on one thing. And I find it harder to do for long periods of time. It's actually like pretty strenuous. The way I do it is, um, you know, just sitting down like I were to meditate and uh, close my eyes and I touch my index finger and my thumb together on each hand and press them together and then what I do is like 110% of your focus goes into that feeling um, and that's what you concentrate on and you can do that this concentration method with like anything you can envision an apple in your head and just focus on that or you can even do it with your eyes open and just focus on an object like a bottle of water you could just stare at it intensely and just try to put all of your concentration onto it. And very soon you'll realize like, wow, this is difficult. It's not as easy as it sounds. Um, but I like to do the fingers. Um, it's hard to do, but once I've noticed you get to this spot where what I kind of end up feeling, the sensation I get is like, I am the feeling, you know? Because by the time you're focused on it so hard that the outside thoughts, um, the story, narrative of your past, all the invasive thoughts you have are so focused in on the finger that all that exists is that sensation. For me, the, the, the feeling of touch works best for, uh, for a concentration exercise. I found it even harder to just use a mental image or an object. I liked the sensation of touch and it gave me a that's the only one that worked really well for me and like getting me to a state of just being the touch. Um, but I, I recommend doing that. I would only do it for, I started doing it for two minutes at a time. So I never got, I don't know how, how long the longest is that I've done it, but it's not like meditation in the sense that it's way harder to do it for a long period of time. Is the result the same or do you find that there's like a little bit of a difference in the result? I think, think i feel like yes and no i mean it's also what i would just call like a different experience the result is like similar um but it's different you know it's more active rather than like a do nothing meditation where you just sit there do nothing watch your thoughts pass by 
and just sit there. It's, it's more active and, um, and it's harder, but the result is, is powerful. It's not quite the same though. Um, like I said, the best it's worked for me was it did clear the mind and I ended up not even identifying with the touch, like feeling it. It's just, that's what it was. Like I was being the touch basically. And it, I couldn't even feel like the rest of my body, you know, I'm just feeling that sensation. And when you have your eyes closed long enough, you know, your body kind of starts to fade away, especially if you're sitting very still and you just sit. And then all I could feel in my body was just this touch of my fingers. And but it wasn't even like my fingers anymore because I wasn't thinking about the body. It was just the sensation of what it feels like to touch your fingers together. It's interesting. I think the lesson from that type of a meditation and the way you described it is that, and you said it, was that you're not identifying with the feeling, but you are the feeling. And I think that's the major message behind that meditation in general is that like you are everything and you can focus in on your body or an inanimate object uh, or anything, anything within your grasp or your aspect mentally or physically. And you can feel that same feeling of, I am this, like you are being it. Yeah, like with that same concentration exercise, it's like there were kind of stages to it, but um, like at one point towards the end of the exercise, I did have that, um, I was in that spot with, you know, pressing my fingers together and this was after doing it for a couple minutes and uh, kind of my ego and everything started to fade a little bit and I was so immersed into the sensation that I started to like identify with it. I was like, kind of just, oh, that's me. Not saying that mentally, but like just knowing that's what I was. And then it just, which I think was the coolest part was the next level. Like I went beyond that after another minute or so. And I just let go of that idea and was just purely being the feeling. Like this is just what is rather than the, the thought left of identifying with the feeling. And then just knowing that the feeling was what all there was in that moment. You know what I mean? It makes me think, what are these people who are like meditating in caves for days straight experiencing? Yeah, who knows, dude? I, there's people that like will just sit and stare at a wall for two weeks. And that's kind of like concentration. I don't know how, how you do that. Because with that exercise, it is concentration because these people... Like, it's different, you know, sitting in a cave and meditating, insane. But with the staring at the wall is they're actually staring at the wall. So they are concentrating. But, I mean, you got to imagine meditating in a cave for long periods of time like that. First off, you're immersed in darkness. I mean, in that, in that type of meditation, you're going to experience some psychedelic effects for sure. I mean, if I meditate, you know, just for half hour, and I'm just sitting, you know, in my room or something, I start to get um, some kind of like closed eye visuals. And, that, you know, you start to see some things, not like as t intense as like, you know, a peak of a psychedelic, but you do get like a little taste of that. So if you're, you know, doing it for such a long period of time, I feel like the effects will be close to that of a psychedelic or something in, in that ball pit at least. Dude, have you ever heard of the darkness retreats that people do? You ever hear Aubrey Marcus talk about it? Yeah, dude, that's, that's terrifying. But he described as DMT visuals that he thought DMT was being released from his brain because he was seeing things that were indistinguishable from a DMT trip. Yeah, I mean, even if you've been in a pitch dark room for even not even that long of a period of time, you'll start to like see stuff. And same, like, if you've ever been outside at night and there's no, like, moonlight, it's just pitch dark and you're outside, you'll, like, think you're seeing things, you know? And I would imagine it's just a very intense version of that. I think that's why, like, Terrence McKenna would advise taking mushrooms in silent darkness. 
and darkness being a pretty important part of that because you're able to see the full breadth of you know, like the mindscape that the psilocybin is creating in your brain. Yeah, it's it's like um at that point it's pure mind, you know, there's no distractions. It's a whole different experience when you just sit there with your eyes closed when you're taking a psychedelic because it's easy to get distracted or immersed into something and it will be profound but it's not quite as profound as just the pure mind state um i've never done psilocybin in silent darkness um that's a whole nother aspect that i haven't really uh ever explored like auditory hallucinations or the auditory experiences i've always listened to music and for me i really enjoy that and it I am curious what it would be like to actually experience the silent darkness. Yeah, because he says, like, you know, don't listen to music. It creates its own music. And it's like, I, I really wonder, you know, I wonder what it would be like to have the auditory hallucin hallucinations of just a pure mushroom experience, because I've never done that either. I'm quite frankly terrified to try that. I mean... I thinking about it, I'm rarely ever in silent darkness. I mean, even when I go to bed, there's usually some type of noise, maybe the TV or a fan or something. It's not easy. And plus, you're going to sleep. So, you know, you're going to fall asleep shortly. It's really not easy to sit alone, like even with meditation, sit alone with your thoughts in darkness and quiet. So I can't imagine doing it full of energy on psilocybin, just forcing yourself to be alone with yourself, nothing to distract you, nothing to even think about or look at other than within yourself. That's got to be really intense. It's something that I want to do, but every time I end up doing mushrooms, I think like the experience that I want to have isn't that, you know, it's that but with music, basically, you know, and but that makes a totally different experience, I could imagine. Totally different. Yeah, I would think. And I think that that would be very dose dependent as well, or at least it would be dose dependent um, as to how difficult it would be to stay still. Because I know that at a certain dose, whenever I've taken like pretty high doses, it really just like it lays you out. And like, I don't want to move most of the time. Yeah. And I'd say that happens pretty shortly. Like when it comes to dose, like, you know, even as soon as you get to an eighth, I'd say that happens. Um, and that's one of the things I, I really like about mushrooms. Um, I've done acid only a handful of times. And for me, it was different in that aspect. When I did acid, I didn't really have the same chill sensation of just kind of laying back. For me, Acid is more of an energized trip and more interactive and like creatively driven than for me, the mushroom experience, which is chilled, laid back, introspective, and um, feels more natural in a sense. I think that was a beautiful description of both. I think in a nutshell, that's exactly right. And then DMT is like, I don't know, some sort of rocket ship that just dwarfs them all or something. Yeah, DMT is... It's just shut up and listen, you know, it's like, it's gonna, it's gonna take you out of this reality or put you in it so deep, actually, that, you know, you're gonna have to question everything. Interestingly enough, though, it's funny, I was talking to in the episode that I just released, actually, uh, Adam Tabero, he was telling me, uh, he brought up a pretty interesting point that is like a pretty obvious, uh, but that LSD acid is like, way way more potent microgram per microgram than DMT or than any psychedelic. Because, I mean, think about it. You take it in micrograms. Like, tiny, tiny, tiny amounts are, are psychoactive. If you took, like, 200 micrograms of DMT, nothing would happen. You, couldn't, you probably couldn't even measure that out in, like, normal free-based DMT. Yeah, that's true. I wonder... I mean, it was created in a lab, so I wonder if that has something to do with it. I mean, it's maybe just purely potent. I don't know. I think you're right, and I think a lot of these research chemicals that were created in the labs probably share a lot of the same attributes.
And it's just like my weird bias that doesn't make any sense actually, but like I love mushrooms because it's natural. I mean, but what does that even mean? Um, but that's my bias. But when you think about it, everything in existence is natural. You know, the lamp sitting in front of us is natural. You know, we like to, as human beings, put ourselves outside of everything and tell ourselves that we're unnatural and anything we create is natural. But a beehive we consider natural, even though the bee created it. It just used the, um, it used its surroundings and whatever it had available to it and created something. And that's the same thing we're doing. Have you ever heard the, um, I think it was Maria Sabina and some of her people, her followers that said after she gave uh, R. Gordon Wasson, or as she said, the white man, uh, the mushroom, and he brought it back to America, it stopped working. Like uh, we took the God out of it or something like that. Um, and that begs the question, is there a difference between ingesting uh, like lab-grade synthetic psilocybin or psilocin, or is like is it better than like the mushroom itself? I know when it comes to dosage, I think it's better because you can hone the dosage in way more than with mushrooms. Mushrooms, you can weigh out the grams, but you don't know how potent each of the mushrooms are that you have. If they're from a different batch, if they're from the same batch, I've seen some that come that came from the same batch that were like, there was no psilocybin or no psilocin in it. Like it almost wasn't, it almost didn't work. And then others uh, from the same batch were just insanely potent. So I think in terms of dosage, you can get a, a better idea as to what you're getting and what you're giving yourself. Um, but yeah, I don't know, man. I really do love the idea that uh, like the system of earth brings about the growth of the mushrooms as opposed to like, you know, synthetically creating it. But at the same time, the system of earth brings us about, which, yeah, which right. brings about our synthetic shit too. Um, but either way, I still have that same bias. And um, as far as dose, I found it very interesting too. Of course, the potency it it's real and it really matters but i've noticed also it's like your mindset also creates the potency too i've noticed since i was meditating more and kind of doing the work outside of psychedelics a lot more i was getting way more powerful experiences on smaller doses um and i believe you know that's because what i brought to it and you know my outlook going into the trip um you know, prior to me really getting into any of this, I could take an eighth and, you know, have a pretty, you know, potent trip. But now I feel like I could take a gram and a half to two grams and have a more potent trip than the eighth would have given me. Um, same potency mushrooms, you know what I mean? It's It's weird. I've also taken mushrooms when I wasn't really feeling like the trip, like I, I didn't really want to that much. I wasn't like super engaged and I didn't have like very much enthusiasm. And it kind of, I think, dulled the experience altogether. It like decreased the potency in a way. I think our minds play a major role in even the potency of, of the trip, clearly. I think fear um, being an aspect of the mind that has a big part of it as well. Like if you're getting bogged down during an experience by fear, you're not allowing yourself to explore like the depths of the potential of the experience. And of course, fear is something that is natural when you're taking a psychedelic, but there's a difference between feeling the fear, witnessing it, seeing it, understanding it, maybe maybe turning toward it in a way to understand it, and um, the difference between that and allowing the fear to dictate how you're going to react. Um, and usually that manifests itself in someone who's just refusing to submit and surrender to the experience, because I think that's, that's a major, the major role of surrender is to uh, diminish fear or maybe to not attach yourself 
to fear so that you can like immerse yourself in the experience. Yeah, because all fear is, it's all because of your attachment to the ego. So the only reason you're afraid is because you're afraid of your your ego to be hurt or like to die, you know, all that. Um, and it's interesting, like paradoxically, the more you like, like you start having a fearful experience, unless you just submit to it and surrender, you end up falling into it deeper. Like it's like misery loves company, that kind of thing. Like the fear will grow and on a psychedelic, it can hit levels of fear that are so beyond anything that you experienced, like in your day-to-day life, the average fears that you feel in, you know, your normal life. The fear on a psychedelic is like existential and like really deep and horrible. And, you know, counterintuitively, if you just like look into it and surrender, it turns into, you know, majesty. And like you can, and that's for me, like when the kind of ego death happens, it's just the moment when you surrender to the fear and understand that you aren't that thing that's afraid. There's nothing that can hurt you because you are, you know, the infinite. You are the dreamer. You are the thing that is, you know, imagining the ego. And I think going through that experience and understanding that fear is a transmutable emotion that doesn't actually have any longevity to it, you can translate that into your daily life. And when you're in a situation that normally you'd be scared in, instead of igniting that fight or flight mode, you're able to rest in the present moment and sort of analyze the situation for what it is because you're not allowing that fear to get the best of you because you know that that fear isn't real almost. It's like uh, it's something that doesn't last and it's something that when surrendered to vanishes. Yeah, it controls. It, it can control you. Like fear is all of our number one enemies. Like that's the number one enemy of a human being is fear. And to live fearlessly is to live in love. Yeah, that's not to say that we don't all still experience that fear, even though we have that experience of transmuting it. We still experience the fear. Yeah, you'd have to be like some guy sitting in a cave for weeks to, you know, get rid of that fear. Um, But to understand it is important. One thing that helps me with fear is the the teaching or understanding that everything is love not just that like stereotypical hippie phrase like oh it's all love man like you know not like when you really break it down to everything being love like all of your emotions are actually love and that's something whenever i'm feeling a quote unquote negative emotion what happens for me that is very helpful is that i try you know if i'm being conscious and mindful in the moment I stop and realize the emotion that I'm actually feeling is love. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what are you loving? So like if, if I'm, you know, feeling angry at someone, then usually what it is, is actually I'm just loving myself, like the ego in a prideful way. Like if, if I'm in an argument with somebody and I'm mad at them, really I'm just experiencing love for myself that's so deep that they are threatening it, you know, in that moment. And every negative emotion you feel is that. It's just usually love for your ego or your ideas that you identify with. Um, and fear is the same. It's usually the, an intense love of the ego that you're afraid to let go of that's threatening your ego and all the things that you identify with. But at, at, in actuality, it's all just love in different twisted forms. So when you can, that's another thing on a psychedelic, like when you have that ego death, I think that's why you experience like pure love because you can realize if you're not identifying with yourself as the ego, then every emotion that exists is only love. And I think that's one of the strongest experiences I've had on a psychedelic, like with the DMT trip, it was more of, um, it was understanding that all is love. And you can, you know, rationally get there too. I mean, the experience is everything, but you can logically, you know, if you're being mindful and conscious in your everyday life, and if you can 
stop yourself every time you are feeling a negative emotion and ask yourself, why are you feeling it? And what am I actually loving? And is that the right thing to do? And usually what I find is that I'm, most of the time it's the dumbest things. It's that I'm loving an idea that I'm like arguing for, or more importantly, an idea that I'm identifying with. Like we identify with our, our biases, our preferences, like it's ourselves. And you will fight to the death over these things. And you will let this rule your, your whole mind and your emotions. And you just take a step back and then know, because I know that's not what, I'm, what I am. I know my ideas are not me. And then why am I loving them over something else? It's like the, the relief of all biases. And then, you know, transcending all emotions to love. When you surrender to all those emotions, or if you surrender to love, that's what you, what you realize is like you experience um, all of the emotions that you thought were you and all of your preferences, you see them melt away and dissolve into the foundation for everything and the foundation for all of your emotions, which is love. And, you know, we always talk about this and it's not necessarily that we're saying like, you know, uh, love between two people necessarily. You know, this, is, this goes beneath that. What you define as love is not necessarily the same thing that we're talking about. We use the word love because it's the only word that comes close to describing the feeling of merging with that thing. But that's, again, it's a, it's a problem with language that makes these things hard to describe and hard to understand. It's, it's, uh, it's one of those things that you have to experience to, um, to really understand. Like if you traveled outside the atmosphere into space, there's only one way you can experience the specific emotions that engulf you when you look at the earth and you can see the entire planet like that must be just an insane experience that again you can only get from doing it yourself yeah that's true i mean all of this stuff is things that it all needs to be independently verified um and the experience itself makes it real. That's the thing. Um, see, the experience is what led me to this. You know, I had the experience kind of... I've had these experiences with psychedelics, not really asking for them, but once they began, then I, you know, wanted to go further and further. I'm glad that you, um, that you brought up the difference between the metaphysical love that we're talking about what we mean by love rather than a romantic love. And you, you like kind of described it as a foundation and it's not just the emotion. And I think that's important to realize, which is why, you know, when I say like fear is love and hate is love, it's not like when you hate, that's a different emotion. So the, the, the love that is all like the basic substance of reality and what we're experiencing isn't anything close to your happy feelings, you know, and it takes the experience of, of, you know, basically an ego death, I think, or just separating yourself from what you think you are to experience love for what it actually is. And that is what we call like, it's unconditional love. Um, I feel like you have to have a, like a divine experience to know what unconditional love is. Because while we're in this form, in this state of consciousness, you could love someone or something so much, but it's still not unconditional. It can't be until you experience unconditional love for what it actually is. Because you can unconditionally love your family, or and like you can think that, that it's unconditional. But if, like, you chopped my dick off and killed mom, I probably wouldn't love you unconditionally anymore. There's always conditions to our love, even in the, you know, the people we love most. But if I'm not me, if I am love itself, that's all there actually is. Kind of just talking in circles, but language can't do it justice because 
language by nature is dualistic. It's all relative. It's all comparative. And you can't use dualistic language to articulate the non-dual, the, the one, which is love. Um, but a good way to think about it is even your, your angry mo- emotions and your fearful emotions are still love just twisted in a different way, which is why I like how you put it that it's like the foundation because underneath it all, it is all love. It's the foundation of reality itself, not, you know, a happy emotion or, you know, a romantic kind of thing. I think it, it also exists, like it's, it exists as a foundation, but I also think it exists like outside of everything too. Like I have this, this thought that like love is what drives quantum mechanics. Like it, it it's like the same thing we're tapping into um, when we discover like the mysteries that quantum mechanics offers us. Um, and it's also what we tap into when we explore what consciousness is. Cause I think that consciousness, love, like all of this stuff, they're like the same thing, you know, but we're just, when we talk about it in different circumstances, we use different words. We'll use love when we're talking about it when it comes to emotions. We use consciousness when we're, when we're talking about it in terms of, you know, maybe what exists outside of, of us and what exists outside of our physical paradigm. And we also use consciousness when we talk about it when it comes to our brains and what it means to be alive and what it means to be aware. But I, again, I think a, awareness is love. Consciousness is love. It, it's all the same thing. And it sounds insane like you could say um like i would argue that love is the substance of reality it's what reality is like you said quantum mechanics like love is what this is made of and that's why i'm always so strong against talk uh, against the uh materialist paradigm and um materialism physicalism in general because if i say this table what it's actually made out of is love that's just the most dumb thing you could you would think I could ever say coming from the materialist paradigm because as a material a materialist that's not it because that your mind is conditioned to reductionism so for some reason it it's reality supposedly works bottom up from that perspective so this table what it actually is is just the sum of its smallest parts so the further we go into it to its smallest parts is supposedly the most fundamental aspect of it, um, which it's not true at all. It, it works the opposite way, goes top down. Um, but we think that, you know, zooming in on something is getting close to some material that will define what reality is in a, in a specific substance. But um, in actuality, it's easier to understand the table for what it actually is or for what everything is, which is love that we're talking about a metaphysical type of love, not in not a material in any sense, because you can come to realize that reality itself isn't actually material. Physicality is a property of this state of consciousness, and consciousness itself is infinite love. So all this is also surrounds infinity. There's a lot of uh, synonyms here. Like you could say reality is God, which is also love, which is infinity or eternity it, they're all they all are the same thing so i think love is the best word of what i could describe as the feeling of reality the pure being of it but it also is god or just pure existence itself awareness just like you said all those words work together in the same way but as long as you're looking at reality as a materialist you could never even allow yourself to start to you know entertain that as a possibility it just doesn't make sense in you know a left brain logical way of thinking that we are just like indoctrinated into yeah i think there's a reason why when you ask yourself the very deep fundamental the biggest questions you can ask you can't answer them with language you can't answer them with the language that has been developed using the same methodology that describes the table as a as a set of its smallest parts there's a reason why 
And that's because, like you said, it, it is like a top-down type of thing. You can't describe love in terms of its atomic structure. And you can't do that because it exists, in my view, outside of the atom. It exists outside of all the physicalist paradigms that we use to break things down because you can't you can't break something into its smallest parts. Observe those parts and how they interact with the rest of the parts in the world and assume that you know what you're looking at and why this thing functions. The only thing you can observe is what it's doing, how it's interacting with the other things that are doing stuff in the world, um, which is the literal definition of relative. Yeah, and it's also one of the reasons why, you know, we believe this is actually the truth, this, um, this materialist notion. It's because, like you said, what we do is we observe the behavior and we look so closely at the thing and we think we understand it more like it's actually telling us something true but what it really does is just allow us to look at it closer and manipulate it more so we have all this technology from that mindset of that reductionism and you know bottom up um and you know we mistake technology and our manipulation of this reality as a knowing of anything or coming any closer to truly understanding ourselves or those unanswerable questions like or well i should say answerable questions but like you would ask me like two three years ago um any of these big existential questions like what is reality why are we here any of this stuff coming from the mindset that i had the reductionist um, atheist type of mindset, those were actually impossible questions to answer. And if you'd ask me, I'd tell you that. I'd be like, we're human beings. Those aren't, it's not in our uh, brain capacity to know. We can't answer that. It's not possible. And that's all a part of this like indoctrination that we've uh, went through, through this materialist, physicalist way of looking at the world. You know, if you if you truly see things that way, then you can't answer those questions. I first had to realize that it was possible to answer those questions before you can start getting answers. There's a paradox that exists within that, too. Because if you ask yourself, can you know the all? Can you know the absolute? Can you understand it? That answer to me is yes and no, because you can feel it you can experience it so you can you can get an understanding of it but i don't think that we have the capacity to understand the all for what it is or for what again but the problem with that type of vocabulary is that when you try to understand what the all is then you are automatically creating something that exists outside of the all which cannot be so it's like, this is the all. What we're doing is the all. There is nothing else to do, nothing else to explain, and nothing else to discover. But then there is so much to discover. It's like this, this world and this reality is such a mindfuck of paradox upon paradox upon paradox that like, if you're not cool with like answering things and understanding things in the form of paradox, and you're just, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. For me, it's like I still have a hard time with it because I think fundamentally when it comes to what a paradox is, it's an under, it's an un, you can't really understand a paradox because there's no rational way to make sense of two things that are the same, but are different. You know, it's like, you can't make rational sense of, of duality versus like the one and the all, because you're trying to describe the all again in like a dualistic sense. Yeah, I mean, it's something like to realize that rationality isn't truth, that rationality is just a human concept. And as far as like knowing the all, I guess in a sense, like I would agree that you can't know the all, but you are the all. So what you can do is be the all, but in a human state of consciousness of rationality and concepts, you can't know the all without being the all.
in a human state of consciousness, like the standard human state, which you are experiencing right now, you can't conceptualize the whole thing. Because our idea of knowing is, you know, to place everything into boxes and just divide things more. So the closest thing that you can get to knowing it is strictly to be it. Because you have to ask yourself, first off, what does it mean to know something at all? What does it mean to know something? And can you know something without being it? But yeah, I guess that would beg the question of like what it means to know something. Like, do I know that um, Mike Tyson once knocked somebody out in eight seconds? I would say you don't know. Because I haven't seen it and witnessed it. All I can do is look at the information that I can intake from who said it happened, correct? Yeah, and this is the importance of not knowing. Like I had mentioned, the uh, the power of not knowing and why it's a useful exercise. It just makes you ask questions and get deeper to the fundamental aspect of what is true in existence. And I would argue that we don't know if the earth is round or flat. That's a good example I use for everybody because it's, it seems so clearly obvious and yet there's a, a debate about it. And I would tell you, I believe that the earth is round, but I don't know that it's round. And I can't know it's round unless somehow I observe it as round and experience it as round and be that. Or if somehow I could independently verify it through an experiment that's never been done, that I'm not copying someone else's work, that I fully understand myself then I could get closer to knowing it. But it's funny because as things that we claim to know, almost all of it is just a faith-based belief. It's just that we put our faith in somebody that figured it out and then believe them and then tell ourselves that we know it. And it's funny, you have a planet of human beings all running around claiming to know things that they actually don't know, that they just believe. And for me, that was a powerful realization when I started to understand that I actually know nothing. <laughs> what I know is this room right now. I know what, what, what is happening. The experience of reality right now is what is known. Um, but I don't know what's outside the door. I can assume and put together a little narrative in my head of what's out there and believe it with all of my heart. Believe it enough to tell you that I know it but I don't know. There could be anything outside that door. But I quote-unquote know there isn't, and there probably isn't, but I don't know that. I just believe it. And that's, that's what we do for almost everything. Everything that you think you know is actually a belief. Yeah, it brings to mind like a, is it like a classic movie and TV show scene that illustrates this like perfectly to me. Like I think about The Walking Dead uh, and like the very first episode when Rick Grimes wakes up, not like, you know, assuming he knows what's outside of his hospital room, you know, and then he goes outside the hospital room and he sees like absolute chaos or like the classic scene where like there would be a crazy disaster somewhere or whatever. And like maybe in like New York City or something and you open up your office door like you're at work, you open up your office door and instead of seeing the hallways and like a nicely put together structured place with a bunch of people and meetings and stuff. What you see is a decimated world around you with, with, you know, destruction and everything that you know and love is gone. Meanwhile, before that, you're thinking you're just going to open your door into what is known. But I think that particular type of scene in movies and TV shows really helps to, to bring that home and illustrate that fact. And yeah, it is a fact. And that's, that's, those are good examples. That's so true. And like an example, that everybody has probably experienced is like, you know, when you walk into a room, your room, and, you know, you go to turn on the light and you've done this thousands of times and you put your finger on the switch and you flip it up and you know the light's going to go on, but it doesn't go on, that the light bulb has died. And you knew, and you didn't even have to ask yourself, you just knew the light was going to go on, but it doesn't, <laughs> you know, you didn't know and you never know. Every time you flick your light switch, you don't know if the light's going to go on. I mean, that, you know, it makes sense. But I'm just saying it goes to even, it, it applies to even the most basic things. You know, 
when you go to, you know, do something on your phone, you know, or like I go to grab my phone out of my pocket and it's not there, something like that, anything. Or do you ever like, uh, you ever look at like a gallon of water or milk or something and like out of the corner of your eye, like you think it's like three quarters of the way full. So like when you grab it to pick it up, you fucking like you launch it up to the ceiling because of how, how like strong you like went to lift it. But in reality, there's like an inch in there. Um, I think that, that that's kind of a cool example of it too. But I think, yeah, the, the, the lesson being like, you don't know till you know. And what we don't take into account when analyzing all these types of things is the fact that everything is moving and changing and flowing. And just like the boat allegory, you know, uh, it's nothing stays the same. And even after years and years and years of small incremental change, and small incremental flows, some things might seem understandable. They might seem like you can define them as what they were, um, but everything is changing. That's what this reality is. It's like a, a constant happening. And the only thing that can happen is change. You can't have non-change. Non you can't have a, a reality that's stagnant and still. Everything is moving, everything is flowing, everything is interacting, and everything is changing. Yeah, the only thing that's permanent is impermanence.